Amen. You may be seated. Well, as many of you are probably aware, at the end of last year, we purchased the property next door that we've been using as a parking lot, 304 uh, East Locust. And a few months after we purchased that property, we were notified uh, by the city that the property was not zoned for parking, uh, that it was not zoned to be a parking lot. Instead, it was zoned as open space. And therefore, uh, with its current zoning, uh, we would be unable to use it as a parking lot in the future. And so this left us with somewhat of a predicament, a dilemma, and a problem to face with a question of what do we do? How do we go about solving this problem? Now, uh, I'll give you a little heads up here. Good news is I met with the city uh, a week or two weeks ago now with the Board of Zoning, and we've actually been given permission to use as a parking lot. So it's been rezoned as a parking lot. So that's really exciting. Uh, we can officially <laughs> park there. Uh, we do have to do some work to it naturally. As you can imagine, there's some holes and whatnot uh, that we need to do uh, quite a bit of work to it. But uh, ultimately, we've been able to rezone that as a parking lot. But it's a problem that we had faced as a church. Obviously, in the area that we're in, downtown, there's not a lot of parking that's just readily available, especially during the week, uh, at nights, and on, on Saturday nights, and then Wednesday nights when we have all of our kids' things. And so there's a problem. We needed more parking, and that was a solution. And then we kind of faced this predicament of uh, not being potentially able to use it. And I'm going to go out on a limb, but I'm going to guess, like me, uh, all of us probably this week or the last few weeks have faced various problems, uh, whether big or small, you've encountered some problem, some form of dilemma in your life, and life is not short of any problems. And as people of faith, we are not people who are immune to problems, rather we see problems in our life day after day, and oftentimes the question then becomes is how will we respond to the problems that confront us, or how should we respond to the problems that stand in front of us in our way. How do we respond? Well, one way to answer that question is this way. When problems confront us, we should confront them by faith. When problems confront us, we should confront them by faith. As people of faith, we should confront our problems in faith. Sometimes we look at situations, dilemmas, predicaments that we run into, and we just kind of forget about God, forget about faith. But the reality is we should look and solve our problems through the lens of faith. And when we don't, when we respond to problems in our life or difficulties in our life, in our flesh, and based off of our feelings as opposed to faith, we, faith, we end up sp facing more problems and consequences that we would happen or rather avoid. And some of those consequences can, in fact, be lifelong or long-lasting consequences, having a long-lasting impact, as we'll see here in a moment. That Abram and Sarai in Genesis 16 are an example of what not to do when problems come up in our life. And there's two scenes this morning. First is the realized problem. Second is the divine promise. And it's really an example of trusting God here in scene two. But scene one, we'll start here, a realized problem. What is the problem that has been realized? Well, in verse one, here's what we're told. Abram, Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him. She had not borne any children for her husband, Abram. Now, why is this a problem? Well, as you are well aware of, is that on multiple occasions, God has promised that he would make Abram into a great nation. And that not only that he would be a great nation, that his children would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, but he would be a nation that would bless every other nation, every other people group on the face of the planet. But in order for that to happen, Abram needed a child. He needed to have at least one kid, which is where the obvious problem arises. Abram, at this time in his life, 
has no children. His wife Sarai has not born any children. Her womb, womb seems to be barren. But she's in this situation, this predicament, that God has promised them children, yet at this point in their life there have been no offspring, no children given. And this is a very real problem, a very real struggle. There is a real pain, I believe, in this statement or in what Sarah is experiencing. In verse 2, she says to her husband Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, I don't think that Sarah just walked up to Abram one day and just said, kind of matter-of-factly, you know, God's prevented me from having children, so uh, let's do this. More than likely, that Sarai has experiencing or is experiencing pain, difficulty, the pain of arms that have never yet held her own child, the pain of just public shame that she's now 75 years old and, and has no children, has borne no children, this pain of her hope of having children not coming to fruition. And as Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 13, 12, hope delayed makes the heart sick, that when you want something, are expecting something, are hoping for something to happen, and yet you don't get that thing, you feel sick, depressed, discouraged. This was real pain, real difficulty that she was experiencing, and it's a real pain, a real difficulty that many women experience today. The reality is, unfortunately, probably many women, many women in our church know this pain all too well. The hope of children, yet that desire not coming to realization, or at least not yet. And we want to sympathize with you. We want you to know that God sees you. He sees us in our pain and suffering, yet in our pain, suffering, in problems and difficulty, there's a choice. We have a choice to make. Will we trust God or fight against God? Will we walk with God and walk in obedience to his ways, or will we go about our own path doing our own thing opposite to what God wants us to do? And Sarah has this choice. Again, she's 75 years old, making it very unlikely, at least from a human standpoint, that she is going to have a child. And in the midst of this problem that she is facing, facing she has to choose what she is going to do, how she is going to resolve or solve this realized problem, what steps she is going to take. And she proposes a solution to Abram. What's that proposed solution? Well, it's her young slave, Hagar. Verse 1, Abram's wife had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave, Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. The, the proposed solution to the problem dilemma that they are facing is that Sarah says, I will give you my slave, Hagar. That she was going to give this slave, Hagar, to her husband, Abram, for her to have children for them, that Hagar would act then as this surrogate to provide children for Sarai. And what does Abram do? What does Abram do? Well, here's what we're told. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. That Abram, foolishly, as we'll see, agrees to this plan. And so in verse 3, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. So Sarai goes and gets Hagar, her slave, gives her to Abram. Abram sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. You might be thinking, how do they arrive to this decision, to this dis solution? How do they arrive to this decision? 
that Sarah would come to this position of deciding I'm going to give my, wife, my slave Hagar to her husband. And Abram says, yeah, that's a good idea. And he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. Well, I think at the heart of the issue is doubting God. There's a lack of confidence and trust in God. And they're repeating the very sin of the Garden of Eden, which is doubting the word of God. In fact, when you look at this situation, the way Moses writes this story, it's a parallel to the fall of the Garden of Eden. That Sarah's actions parallel that of Eve, and Abram's that of Adam. That Abram listened to his wife, Sarai, just as Adam listened to his wife, Eve. And Sarai took Hagar, just as Eve took the fruit. That Sarai gave Hagar to her husband, just as Eve gave the fruit to her husband. And in both cases, these men willingly and knowingly partook. They willingly and knowingly stepped into disobedience to God. And if you step back here for a moment, you can see how Sarai and Abram might have gotten into this situation. It's 10 years. They've been in the land of Canaan, this promise given, hoping, waiting, anticipating a child, yet nothing happened. No children has been, child has been born. Sarai is 75 years old, well past childbearing years, and she's probably become somewhat discouraged, frustrated, starting to think about how do I get what I want? How do I make this promise that God has given happen? And she looks at her slave, Hagar, who's young, of childbearing age, and she points her slave, Hagar, or gives her to Abram. And culturally, this was acceptable. This was the practice of the culture. Polygamy was perfectly legal, logical, acceptable in this culture that, from what Sarah had come from, as well as the culture she was surrounded by. And oftentimes this is what happens when we're facing situations, we're in problems, situations arise, dilemmas confront us, we begin to look to the world around us as opposed to God to solve our problems. And this is in part what Abram and Sarah seem to do. Rather than looking to God, they're looking to the culture. This is the practice of the culture, we'll just operate this way. And then there's God in the whole equation that Sarai, in verse 2, she says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, there's one of two ways to look at that statement. Either she's saying that in faith, as though she knows God is in control and open and closes the womb, or she's saying that in a sense of blame and pointing at God as though it's your fault, God, that I have not become pregnant and given birth to a child. Given the situation, my guess is that's the air that, or that's the direction that she is kind of going. Now, Life and faith are always these tensions and struggles where we're going, before, we're going back and forth trusting, yes, God, you're sovereign in control, and then at the same time, we find ourselves operating outside of really believing that God is sovereign and in control. But I think it would make sense that, in part, why Sarah, when she makes this statement, the Lord has prevented me, is it's like pointing at God, God, it's your fault. It's your fault. Just like Eve or Adam in the garden says, well, this is the woman that you gave to me. There's a sense of blaming God. And they're looking at their situation, and God has not come through, and they decide we need to help God in fulfilling his promise. We need to take care of what God has yet not yet said that he would do. And then what happens is life begins to erupt. There's chaos and pain, not life and joy. Here's an important principle that we'll see played out here in just a moment, is when you fail to trust in the word of God, and act apart from the design of God, you will not experience the life, 
joy and peace that God offers. That when we fail to walk by faith in the word of God, the promises of God, we act apart from how God has designed or how he's called us to live, we are not going to experience the life, joy, peace that God has to offer. And we try to solve problems apart from faith, apart from lens of faith in God and his word, we create more problems, more harm, more pain. And we see this here in these following verses. Verse 4, he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. The situation is that Abram sleeps with Hagar. Hagar now is pregnant. Sarah sees this. And what happens is that Hagar now looks with contempt upon Sarah. That is, she sees her as lesser than herself. See, Abram and Sarai, they had treated Hagar in a, in a horrible way, like this inanimate, unfeeling instrument. As one commentator put it, like a soulless baby machine. She's just there to provide them what they want. She's just to give them children. And then Hagar becomes pregnant. The thing that they want, but yet they don't ultimately want, or at least Sarai does not, she becomes pregnant, and she becomes proudly pregnant at that. And she couldn't seem to resist displaying her, displaying this pregnancy with an inappropriate haughtiness towards Sarah, thinking that somehow her pregnancy showed her to be better than Sarai. That she succeeded where Sarai had not succeeded, and so she began to look down on her mistress on Sarai. And she seemed to enjoy her pregnancy as like this victory over her mistress, over Sarai. And we find ourselves in those situations where we've been in those spots where we look down on somebody else or someone's looking down on us because of what we have done or have not accomplished. Human nature. We try to elevate ourselves over others. We try to put others down to feel better about ourselves, to feel bigger and better, more important, more awesome. And there's this division that ensues between Hagar and Sarah, and we'll see gets more volatile in a few moments as we follow the story. But then there's Sarai and Abram. And Sarai looks at Abram and says to him in verse 5, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. I became less than to her. I became lower to her. May the Lord judge between you and me. May he judge between you and me that Sarai, she looks at Abram and she blames him for the situation that they are in. Abram, this is your fault. If it wasn't for you, this would never happen. We wouldn't be in this situation. Yet when you look at the situation, you think, wait, 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 wait a minute, Sarah. I mean, you're the one who came up with the plan. You're the one who came and said, uh, how about you have my slave Hagar and you, uh, you, you sleep with her and she comes pregnant, she can give children for us. You came up with the plan. How, how is it Abram's fault here? And this is what tends to happen oftentimes in life, is we tend to blame others for the problems we create, for the sin that we commit. That we pull the finger out of our pocket and we begin to look and point at the person nearest to us. You know, uh, this is, evidently this is just seen uh, in kids all the time. My kids are no exception and I uh, tend to, my kids come in and there's some situation that's going on, something happened and I'll ask the one who's been 
accused or the ones that are involved, the parties that are involved in whatever conflict, I say, uh, so what did you do? And inevitably, what happens is they just point and say, well, so-and-so did this. And I say, stop. What did you do? And they're like, well, so-and-so did this. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> You're not understanding my question. I said, what did you do? And they have a hard time. We have a hard time accepting, owning responsibility to the, towards the things that we do wrong. We don't like feeling guilty. We want to justify our behavior. And we see this with our lives, just in our own probably homes, in our own relationships. We see this out in the culture, surely, that the world around us just wants to point the finger. We want to point the finger at somebody else. We're going to be quick to blame anyone other than ourselves for the problems we face, for the pain that we might be in, for the sin that has been committed. But at the same time, in one sense, she's right. Sarai is right. Abram is at fault. And you might think, well, how does that work? Again, because Sarai was the one who came up with the plan. She presented it to her husband, and he just kind of agreed to the plan. Well, it's very much like Adam in the Garden of Eden. The sin of the world was put on Adam's shoulders. But ultimately here, this problem, this situation, this chaos, in many ways, squarely sits on the shoulders of Abram. That Abram, he failed. He failed to lead his home to protect his wife. He failed to lead her in the truth. Just think about this for a moment. Abram was the one whom God had spoken to. Abram was the one whom God had come to and made the covenant promise with, not Sarai, but to him. You just back up one chapter in Genesis 15, and we saw last week that Abram has this experience with God, where God comes to him, and Abram separates uh, the goat and the, the cow and the, brings the birds, and there's a blood, and he's God comes and he puts Abram in this deep sleep. Terror falls on him. And God walks through these animals and makes a covenant with Abram. Says, you, you Abram, you will be this father of all these nations, a blessing to all these people. You will possess this land. That Abram did not just forget that experience. And what Abram should have done is said, honey, I love you and I love God. And because I love you and because I love God, we are going to trust God's timing and plan. That God will do what he says. And I know, but Abram did not. Abram did not. As a result of his disobedience to the Lord, his wife, his family is in misery. There's upheaval in the home. The ground is shaky. And to make matters worse, in verse 6, Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. This is where at least Abram should have stepped back and said, Okay, honey, I'm sorry. I did not lead you well. I love you, and the way I went about this whole situation was not right. Not like he should have falsely accepted blame and responsibility, but he should have accepted the blame and the responsibility for what he did that was wrong. And he should have dealt kindly with Hagar. You know, notice how Abram treats 
Hagar here. He says, here, your slave is in your power. He doesn't say Hagar. He calls her by her label, slave. I think partly because it's much easier to face those whom you've mistreated if you depersonalize them. If you don't recognize them for who they actually are. And Abram's just in a, in a world of mess here. And he's in a world of mess because he has not trusted God. That Abram should have sought God's wisdom. He should have repented. He should have sought the Lord in prayer. Instead, he just capitulates. And what he does is he gives into really social convention. So during this time period, there is the Code of Hammurabi, which stipulates that if a concubine claims equality with her mistress, so Hagar claims equality with her mistress Sarai, because she bore children, her mistress may demote her to her former status. That, that's basically what's going on here. He, they're just demoting Hagar back to her former status as slave, not wife of Abram, who is now pregnant with the child of Abram, whom God has spoken to and made a promise with. That Abram abdicates any responsibility for this situation. He treats his wife poorly, he treats Hagar poorly. And he just tells his wife, you, you just do with her what you want. Whatever you want to do with her, you do with her. And so what we're told is that Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Now, just think about that. Being mistreated so much that you ran away. It's not like you just run down the street to somebody else's house. She's like running away from the people who protect her. She's this young girl, more than likely young girl, who is now pregnant, just kind of running out into the land. More than likely not a safe thing. You'd have to be severely mistreated to probably do just that. And this word, mistreated, is later used in Exodus to explain how the Egyptian slave masters treated the Israelites. That Sarah dealt harshly with her. And Sarah acted out of vengeance towards Hagar for doing the very thing that Sarai wanted her to do. But see, what Sarai begins to realize is that when you step outside of the will of God, there's all kinds of problems. There is not peace, there is not joy, there is not life. Instead, what happens is you have Sarai's cruelty and Hagar's pride colliding, and Sarai is treating Hagar horribly, and she flees. And the result of this decision just leads to misery. It leads to lives that are in free-for-all. The ground is shaking under their feet. All because when you fail to trust the word of God and act apart from the design of God, you will experience more problems, more pain. You will not experience the life, the joy, and peace that God has to offer you through faith. And when we look at our problems apart from faith, apart from obedience to God, more problems ensue, consequences come, harm is done. See, God's plan here I think it's pretty evident, <clears throat> pretty clear. His plan was to bring about his promise through their marriage, not some other arrangement. Forget what the culture is saying. Forget what the culture does, whether polygamy is, is legal or right or whatever in that culture or not. What does God say? The promise is given to Abram. You will be a father of many nations. And who is Abram married to? Sarai. The, logical conclusion 
is that God is making this promise to Abram that would come also through his wife Sarah. And we know that to be true as we read on in following chapters. That God has made marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. And God's arrangement was to use them, not some other arrangement. But Sarah and Abram failed to trust God, and they reaped the consequences of not walking in obedience to God. And the reality is, we have all probably been there in some way, shape, or form. We have not chosen to walk with God, to obey God. To live by faith, and we have reaped the consequences for those decisions. As Paul says in Galatians 6, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will reap. Principle of scripture, whatever you sow, you will reap. That's true independently, or individually. It's also true culturally. As we abandon God, reject God, as our culture spits in the face of God, God will not be mocked. Culture will reap destruction. It will reap what it has sown. And we will too. And so we want to be a people who not walk according to our flesh, but according to faith. Who live according to God's design. God's plan. Because when we don't, there are real consequences. There's a real mess. And then Sarah and Abram, they find themselves in a complicated painful, messy situation. And Sarah's treatment towards Hagar sends Hagar on the run, which leads us to theme two, which is a divine promise, and really an example here of trusting God in problems, that Hagar is poor, abused, and pregnant, and she's running away. And in verse seven, so the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, Slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, where have you come from? Where are you going? And her reply, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. It's like she doesn't even know where she's going in one sense. She just wants to get away from the situation. I'm just running. I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, and she's running away because she's been so poorly treated, abused. And she comes to the spring, and this angel of the Lord peer, appears to her. And some, you know, ask, is this, is this a pre-incarnation of Christ? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I know this, is that God is intervening in her life. And that in her trouble and in her pain, God comes to Hagar, and he meets her where she is at, and then he tells her two things. First in verse 9, one, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. Now, that is a wild statement given what she had just experienced. Being used by Abram and Sarai to, to have a child and then she's horribly treated by Sarai for doing what she was basically told to do type of thing. You're like, that's not fair. And now you want me to go back to that? How, how does that work? How could that be? Why? Well, verse 10, the second thing the angel says, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too 
many to count. Hagar, I want you to go back. And I want you to submit to Sarai. And I want you to go back because there's a promise for you here. That I'm going to greatly multiply your offspring. Now this is an amazing promise, an amazing statement. She's like a nobody in the world. She's this slave girl that's been used and abused, mistreated, on the run. And God appears to her and then the God of heaven and earth tells her, your offspring will be too many to count. I'm going to greatly multiply you. I'm going to greatly multiply you. In verse 11, we're told, he gives, the angel gives her more instruction. He says, you have conceived and you will have a son and you will name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. And this is what Ishmael means. God has heard. That God has heard her cry of affliction. I'm sure as she was leaving on the run, she is crying and she is calling out in some way, shape, or form. And God sees her. And God comes to her. And God makes this amazing promise to her. You will have offspring and they will be numerous. Numerous, too many to count. I will greatly multiply you. Now in this, she, or God tells Hagar what her son would be like. He says, this man will be like a wild donkey, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will settle near all of his relatives. Wild donkey was used in the Old Testament uh, as a figure of an individualistic lifestyle that was like untamed by the by kind of social convention. That he would be this wild man, kind of wild stallion, whose hand would be against everyone and everyone's hand would be against him. In other words, he would live in constant conflict with those around him. And we know that historically Ishmael's offspring is the Middle East, is the Arab nations, Muslims. And there has been conflict and tension between the people of God in Ishmael's offspring for millennia. And you just go back, you think about that idea, that for millennia, as one commentator put it, little did Abram and Sarai imagine that their shortcut would originate a conflict that would run for millennia and that oceans of blood would be spilt, killing after killing after killing. And this goes back to the decision that Abram and Sarah made one day where they failed to trust God, and the consequences of their decisions have lasted for millennia. For thousands of years. There's this conflict, death, that has happened. But God makes this promise to Hagar. I want you to notice Hagar's response to God here. So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roy, for for she said, in this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. It's interesting, Hagar doesn't get fixed on what God says about Ishmael, but rather on who God is. That God himself had come to her in her pain, in her suffering. And in amazement, she names God. And she names the place that she is at, the well she is at. And the name that she gives to God and to the well that she is at both celebrate the same reality that God sees her in her pain, that he is 
looked after her in her trouble and her suffering. So what happens? Well, Hagar, we're told in verse 15, gave birth to Abram's son. And Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Exactly as God had promised, Hagar gave birth to a son, and Abram named the son Ishmael. And the fact that Abram named the son meant Hagar went back to Abram and Sarai. And he shared this story with Abram. And, this, and Abram believed Hagar. He believed her story. And so when she gave birth, she named the son, or he named the son of his, Ishmael. That he accepted this promise from God by taking her back and taking responsibility for her and his son. Now, what do we do? What's the application? Well, there are a lot of things we could say, but there's one big idea with a couple parts. The big idea is this, is confront your problems in faith. That all of us are going to experience difficulty, one form of another, whether it's Hagar and being mistreated by somebody, whether it's Sarai and having expectations that aren't fulfilled, whether it's Abram and your wife here is coming to you and has this idea and you should know better, how do we respond to the problems, the dilemmas in our life? Well, we should confront those problems in faith. Now, what does that look like? Well, I want to give you four aspects or kind of principles. They don't answer every specific little question I'm sure you might have about a situation, but it gets you down that road of how to know what to do. And the four aspects of this, one is prayer. It's prayer. So oftentimes what happens is we bypass prayer and we just go on to doing we don't seek God and look to God and ask God, God, what is it that you want me to do given this situation? And God might not lead us all exactly the same way in the same type or similar type of situation. We don't need to seek God and we need to ask God, partly because it slows us down. I don't know about you, but something happens, I just want to deal with it and get past it, or I think I know what to do and I'm just going to then execute on that and I find myself making Errors. I find myself stepping into sin, doing things I would not do if I stopped and prayed. Say, God, what, what do you want? I mean, just imagine if Abram, Abram just said, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And see, what happens when you pray, as a believer in Christ, you have the Spirit of God, and God reminds you of what is true. As you've been in the Word of God, God uses His Word to direct us. And there's been so many times when I just stop and pray and think, okay, I don't want to do that because, God, this is what your word says. That we need to be people who seek God in prayer before we act. I love Jesus, and he says to his disciples, you know, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And he doesn't say, now go out and be laborers. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray. And so, brothers and sisters, as we face problems, we want to be men and women who pray. Second, counsel, ask others. As people of faith, we're not asked to live this life of faith independent of others. Rather, you've been brought into, we've been brought into a body of believers, the body of Christ, the church. And part of this life of faith is to live this life of faith with those, with one another. And as we face difficulty in our life, one of the 
One of the, the great things about living life together with other followers of Christ is that we have an opportunity to get counsel, to ask others, how would you handle this situation? Others who have gone before us and who've had similar, faced similar situations as you might be facing, you say, how would you handle this? In counsel, asking others for their opinion, advice, their wisdom has saved me many of times. Many times from making foolish decisions, for making choices that are not good, not right, would not lead to the best outcome, that would not most honor God and be a blessing to others. And that just asking for counsel, it helps you kind of step back and think about the situation and other people give you perspectives on Here's how you might want to think about that. Or if you do this, here's my, what might happen. Or here's what God's word says. Let's apply it this way. The brothers and sisters, we want to be people of prayer and we want to be people who are seeking counsel, asking others as we confront problems, dilemmas, situations, a difficulty in our life. Third is believe that God's way is best. Believe that God's way is best. Paul says in Romans that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. That God's will, his way, will lead to maximum blessing in your life. The greatest amount of joy and peace in life. To operate outside of God's will, to do things our way, apart from God's way, will lead to much pain, heartache, difficulty. Hagar is a good example of what happens when you obey God. I imagine Hagar is hearing, go back, submit, you're thinking, what? But God says, you do, I'm going to multiply you, I'm going to make you into a, a great people, multiply your offspring. And Hagar goes back, she obeys, she believes God. That's what's happening. In some way, shape, or form, she's believing what God says to be, to be true, and she's acting on it. And brothers and sisters, Believing God, being people of faith, in part is connected to obeying God. That if we know God wants us to do X, that we do that and we walk in obedience. As we walk in obedience, we will experience God's maximum blessing for our life. Lastly, is fourth, is believe that God is with you. There are all kinds of situations that we are going to face that are going to be extremely difficult. Whether it's with your kids, your spouse, a family member, whatever it might be. Or they're going to be hard. Situations that are going to confront us, that we're going to have to make decisions that are hard. And oftentimes what happens is when we get in hard situations, we begin to rely on feelings. And what can happen in hard and difficult times is that we rely on feelings. And the feeling that comes often with, uh, with trouble and pain, difficulty, is that it feels like God has left he's not there but one of the great truths of the gospel is that god will never leave you or forsake you hebrews 13 5 i will never leave you or abandon you that when jesus went to the cross two thousand years ago jesus was not punished because he had committed crimes against the roman government or had even committed any crime against god but jesus went to the cross to die for the crimes that you and i have committed against God 
And upon dying on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That Jesus was abandoned so that you would not ever be abandoned. That for those of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe upon Jesus, not only are our sins forgiven and we stand blameless before God, but we can claim one of the most, in my opinion, encouraging, best promises given to us is that God will never leave us. Even if you feel like he has, he has not left you. As Paul says in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can change the fact that you belong to him. That God is near God is with you in your problem, in your pain, in your troubles, comes near to you. And if we're going to walk by faith, part of walking by faith is believing that God is with you no matter what happens. He will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And so, brothers and sisters, we're going to be people who confront our problems in faith, not fear. We want to walk with God, trusting in the promises of God himself. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you.